following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom. Now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 51 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if the Wizard Bunny was ever hired by DC's backwards-talking magician Zatanna to be pulled out of her hat. I'm Adam. Get ready, geeks, because I'm coming at you in a full-on, fleer-flare trading card coloring style that's guaranteed to burn the retinas out of your eyeballs. I'm Michael. <laughs> and joining us tonight is a listener to the podcast that has literally made 90s comics his brand. From the Gabe Loves 90s Comics Instagram and YouTube channel and Ninja Comics on Whatnot, it's Gabe! How's it going? Hey, what's up, everybody? I am doing great. I appreciate the chance to come on the show. This is going to be a good time. This is a great issue of Wizard. I read from front to back, so we got a lot to talk about, I think. Well, that makes one of us, because I definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gabe, I know that you actually bought a sealed copy of this issue in preparation for the show. You were so excited sharing it on social media. Uh, I actually had to do the same myself. Why? Because as I started flipping through it to prepare the show notes, I realized that someone had cut pictures out of this issue of Wizard Magazine. Why does this keep happening to me, Michael? My X-Men trades, my Gen 13 number one, like all these comics that I get that people are slicing and dicing. Who are these people? That might be my old original copy, Adam, because what I used to do is after I read through the book, I had it lying around for a while. I would take the posters out. Like my room is covered in wizard posters. And then I would cut the images out, like really cool images. And I would tape them on like these binders. All my comic books at, at one time were in binders. So I just made these cool collages on my binders of cut up wizard magazines. You were the guy, ah, Gabe. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds like you have been reading comics for quite a while, but we want to go back to the beginning, find out how it all started. So, Gabe, please tell us your origin story. This is my favorite topic, and it's me. No, uh, <laughs> my origin story, this is great. So I'll, I'll go back a little bit. I think my first look at anything superhero-related is when I was really young. I remember a Spider-Man children's book. I think it was called, like, Big Top of Terror or Big Top of Chaos. It was some kind of Spider-Man at the circus, you know, having crazy adventures and stuff like that. That was the first time I ever saw, like, a superhero. And it was always kind of stuck around in my mind, and we're probably about the same age. I know that, so we probably watched the same show 
bills and things like that. But eventually, the first comic book I ever read, I ever got, was given to me by a friend, and it was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one. Whoa. But it was the, uh, the the fifth print. It wasn't oh. like some $65,000 <laughs> relic today. It's an old, tattered, beat-up copy of the fifth print, which is a really cool, different red cover on it. I have it signed by Kevin Eastman and stuff like that. So uh, that's the first time I ever read a comic book. I loved the Turtles, and that was an experience because it was not the cartoon versions of the Turtles. It was this really more violent and gruesome story and art. It was such a great experience. And that was it. From there on, I was really gotten into the comics. So I was always influenced by friends and the things that they were reading. So it was things like some of my first early comics I remember reading also were like early uh, John Byrne and Chris Claremont X-Men comics. But when it really came around, it's been things like the Death of Superman first came out, Jim Lee on X-Men. From there, it was a crazy little gay running around comic books, comic books, comic books. All I cared about, taught myself how to draw reading comics, taught myself how to read, maybe not read, but to enjoy reading more was because of comic books. So I've always been a part of my life. And then an interesting part about that is I think, Adam, you and I, I think we grew up in the same areas of California. We can get into that a little bit later. But shout out to, to Anaheim and Westminster and uh, Comics Unlimited. And then it came to a point where when I went to school and I had a friend who's my best friend now and still my best friend. First time I met him was in class when they gave us independent reading time and he was pulling comic books out of his bag. A true sign of friend material. So that's how me and him first met. I didn't know I could bring comic books because before, when I was in a different school, I would get my comic books taken away from me. Like I still remember the sad experience of having my uh, Wildcats number one taken away because I was reading it during class. And that just became a lifelong passion of mine with comic Mm. books. Comic books had brought a lot into my life and experiences because I also worked in a lot of comic book stores. Some people might know me out there from Torpedo Comics here in Las Vegas. That's owned by the drummer from System of a Down, John DeMayan. And I worked there for a couple of years. A lot of people know me from there. And just again, that was part of my life. Now I'm working in a comic book store with the drummer from System of a Down. And I learned a lot about comic books even before that. But even then, I kind of leveled up and I started buying because I was a big buyer for the store. So it was buying collections and going out of town to buy collections, selling, traveling the country, doing conventions with Torpedo Comics. So it was this really great opportunities that I had. I'm going to cut that story short because I'm going to go on forever, but we need to get into this Wizard Magazine and that talk. But yeah, big time collector. I sell on whatnot, Instagram, YouTube channels I got. It's it's just been an entire situation with me. You know, I I sell on whatnot to get more comic books so I can get keys. Uh, I'm a big grader. I'm a big collector, like CGC and graded books now. So it's going to be fun talking because I I, I feel like I'm a slightly (laughs) different guest when it comes down to my taste in comics and the the kind of current collecting uh, habit and stuff like that. Well, we are always welcoming to new perspectives here on the podcast. I mean, just to clue people in, you have profit, you know, from Extreme Studios yeah. by Stephen Platt as your profile picture. So that tells us right off the bat, you like profit, and that makes you very different from us. Yeah. But I'm sure we will get into that down the line here. But speaking of your old boss there, uh, he was actually featured in Wizard Magazine many years from this issue in a double-page spread. They featured his drum kit that had all these original art pieces on it. And then I know that Arlene So, who we had on the Wizard Files, who was a designer for Wizard, she was the one who actually got to go and be the head of putting that article together at a concert and all this stuff. So that's awesome. But can you tell us, what did Wizard Magazine mean to you as a kid collecting in the 90s? 
Wizard was a part of my pull list from day one. It was right there with my X-Men and my Batman and my Spider-Man books. It was on my pull list. Even before I was able to move into uh, areas of California that had more comic book stores, back then you could find Wizard at the local newsstand. You know, you could find it at the liquor store, find it at the Ralph's and the Stater Brothers and all the grocery stores. It used to be everywhere. So it really infused other aspects of comic books for me. Because of Wizard, I discovered things like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns because there's a issue later on where they compare paired the two and I was like what is this Watchmen and this Dark Knight book that people keep talking about and they go through this whole list of what makes Watchmen better what makes Dark Knight better and that would introduce me to Watchmen for the first time to Dark Knight for the first time to Frank Miller for the first time and it really influenced all of that and then also the price guide the price guide was important for me uh, not just to try and you know price out my own collection but it, it was a price guide it was a guide for the prices so going to comic book stores and going to conventions as a younger kid it really helped a give me the idea of what this book sells at and what i should be paying for it and good deals on on books so things like that so that was a really important aspect on it finding new creators finding new comic book stories new artists all of that came from wizard it was a mandatory part of collecting comics back then obviously we agree and uh, you know i'm looking forward to swapping some more stories with you as the episode goes on michael it might be gabe and i going off this time you know usually it was you and steven talking about long island talking about life in new york but uh looks like orange county has come to play here so we'll have to come up no with way. a California bumper tonight. <laughs> Here it is, finally. Like Adam's going to have somebody on who like collects old comic books, who collects old video games, and all of that stuff. So I found my people. Well, and you know, the thing is, back in elementary school, I remember there used to be this pen pal program they had where you could send letters back and forth to other kids at other schools. We should have totally hooked up back then. But in the meantime, Michael, I think it's time that we open up. Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. So we've got a guy named Doc. Blaylock from Griffin, Georgia, who calls out some really hypocritical actions on the part of Wizard in their discussion of Todd McFarlane in the magazine. Old Doc says, Dear Wizard, I have yet to figure out the hypocritical way Wizard deals with Dark Age poster boy Todd McFarlane. One side of the coin is apparent in Magic Words, re the response to Matt Baird's letter in Wizard 47. A fanboy asks why his friends have never heard of Spawn. Your answer? Your friends have taste. I agree. But then issue after issue, I turned to the back of your magazine, and there it is, Ego by the Enfant Terrible himself. There is obviously someone mature and educated at Wizard who must see McFarlane and his creation as the mindless vehicles they are, and yet we are treated to a monthly dose of inane diatribe and self-serving rhetoric by the image idiot. Why do you continue to pander to this bozo when you know you're only fueling Toddy's already huge ego? I think your readership has spoken loud and clear that the foolish and childish ego is regarded is clutter. Your fans have demonstrated a desire for substance over so-called style. Why not give us all a break? Cut the ego column or give it to someone who can speak to the issues of the day and who will not use it as a barker for his own wares. But I guarantee this Doc Blaylock here is now the type of guy that's buying up every single McFarlane DC action 
that comes out <laughs> guaranteed without question. Gabe, why don't you tell us what Wizard had to say in response? Yeah, we are a little schizo when it comes down to dealing with this McFarlane character. Speaking strictly personally here, I have no qualms whatsoever about ripping the guy a new hole every month in the letters pages. <laughs> Simply because he's got a column of his own in these pages, but love it or hate it, you're reading it every month. How else would you know about this insane diatribe and self-serving rhetoric? Personally, I think Todd McFarlane is a nice guy at heart, but he's real flaky. <laughs> so I, I just think it's kind of funny, right? Because when you think about it, you know, there's, again, the belief that, you know, uh, Wizard was so on board the image train, you know, they'd never speak against them. And in here, clearly, Jim McLaughlin, not a fan, but Garib Shavis a fan and you know he was definitely going to uh do what he could to stay on images good side and that means giving todd a forum and other uh little favors here and there i guess you'd say yeah and we'll keep cashing those checks for all the ad spaces in the book too yeah seriously <laughs> Cha-ching! So now we've got, as a follow-up, Larry D. Lancaster from Redmond, Oregon, offers his opinion on Todd McFarlane's work. It's a real Todd McFarlane-heavy mailbag here tonight. Absolutely. And it says here, Dear people at Wizard, please tell Todd McFarlane that if I had to choose between Spawn, X-Men, or Sergio Aragonese Gru, all of which have a $1.95 cover price, and I had only $5, I would buy X-Men, Gru, and a 20-ounce Mountain Dew. The quality of the printing in X-Men is worth the price, and I know that a story written by Sergio is worth reading. Plus... I like Mountain Dew. And tell us, Gabe, did Wizard do the do? That's the power of being a consumer, sending a message with your wallet. Just ask yourself before the next purchase if you really want to buy a comic for print quality. And in case you didn't know, those big Dew bottles are known as 20-ounce quenchers in the northern United States and the 20-ounce boss in the south. <laughs> Hey, well, uh, now we know, I guess. Any of our Southern listeners out there, do you ever go over to the Piggly Wiggly and pick up a 20-ounce boss of dew? I'm from the Northeast, and I have never heard the term 20-ounce quencher in my entire life. So. Yeah, that's not easy to say. Like, why would you nickname something like that? It's not yeah. easy to say. 20-ounce boss is better. But yeah, just a little bit of rebellion here against Todd McFarlane. It's going to be interesting to monitor and watch and just see in these pages amongst the fans of the readership is todd mcfarlane gonna remain the golden boy hmm time will tell one will assume though that tonight i have to say just as we started out of the gate like this i think todd mcfarlane is going to be having more mentions in the jim and todd's hype machine later in the evening and i haven't looked ahead to know so i'm gonna just guess seems very very likely but oh michael i see something coming over the ticker it must be time for <laughs> it will never not make me laugh. Our top story tonight, Marvel vs. DC, is announced as an upcoming four-issue crossover pitting top heroes from both publishers against one another. Finally, I have been waiting for us to get to this point because between this and Amalgam was like the brief window where I came back onto comics when I was trying to pretend that I wasn't also interested in girls at the same time. So All right. Here we go. Two issues will be handled by Marvel and the other two by DC. Each will be 40 eight pages. 
That's wild. But now, is it 48 pages for the two issues or 48 pages each issue? It specifically said each. So does that sound right, Gabe? I know you said you had the issues close by there. What do you see? Uh, let me take a look. I got them right here. This is a thick book. So I think that would be the 48 pages. Yeah. And the pages are numbered. So yeah, it's 48 pages. And then wow. you get a lot of cool, um, in the back is like your ballot sheet kind of where it's like this, you get all the stats, like Superman stats and the Hulk stats and stuff like that in the back of oh. it. Too. Cool. Planned crossover battles include Submariner versus Aquaman, Thor versus Captain Marvel. I would have thought Thor probably would have gone against Superman, but sure, okay, fine. <laughs> Lobo versus Wolverine, Batman versus Captain America, Superman versus the Hulk, and more. It's revealed that the winner of these fanboy fight dreams will be decided by fans who can vote with a special ballot that'll come packed into issue 53 of Wizard. How excited were you guys to hear about this event? I, as I said, was very excited. I forgot there were 48 pages, and I forgot who the battles were because I haven't read it in so long, but I was <laughs> pumped for this. Well, Gabe, let's hear it. I was really excited. It sounds awesome, but this is also, like, the first time that Marvel and DC has gotten together and did a collaborative book together in years. Um, so it was really cool to see that, because... At that time, that would have been like my first experience seeing DC and Marvel cross over together. Uh, and yeah, you get all these really cool looking fights. I was, I was super excited for it. I still got the books now. They're great. See, and for me, it was, it wasn't even like excitement. I wouldn't say it was shock and awe that it could even happen. You know, just that whole idea that they would let the fans decide who would win. That was fascinating to me. I remember, uh, getting the voting ballot. I'm sure it was from that issue of Wizard that they said. And just looking at the matchups and thinking they were weird, you know, like Ben Riley, Spider-Man and Superboy, you know, just that kind of stuff. And then reading all about it in Wizard, but I never bought, actually, any of the four issues until years later. Like, I was all in on Amalgam, and I bought all those comics, and I loved that, reread them multiple times, but I didn't catch up to what the cause of it all was until many years later. But that's a discussion for another day. My final thoughts about Marvel versus DC, or DC versus Marvel. <laughs> you know, speaking of Superman, in the showdowns there, Michael, a Superman co-creator Jerry Siegel is auctioning off the portable typewriter he used to write the early Superman comic book stories while on a train between Cleveland and New York. The price is set at $65,000, which is more than 10 times the current record holder for typewriters in 1995. Again, I don't know how many collectible typewriters, high-priced typewriters, were going up for sale. What's the next famous typewriter? Angela Lansbury's typewriter in the end of it. <laughs> <Murder> she wrote... <laughs> Yeah, so at this time, though, uh, the sale was being handled through Pacific Comic Exchange, but in 2011, it was reportedly being sold again by a group called Comic Connect, and then as of 2019, yes, we did our research here, it appears that the typewriter is now part of an exhibit of the American Writers Museum called Tools of the Trade. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Tom Hanks, yes, the Oscar-winning actor, is an 
avid typewriter collector, which makes me just think that his wife, Rita Wilson, must hear the clickety-clack of the keys in her nightmares. Uh, but it makes you wonder, kind of like, was he up for this bidding, or did he buy it at one point and then donate it to the museum? It feels like it would not be far off. If anybody, it should have been Nicolas Cage, I guess. <laughs> but it does make me wonder, then, for you guys, is there a piece of comic book ephemera, a piece of history, not necessarily just a comic book itself, that you would want to own? I'll let our guests go first. Okay, so I got a lot of cool, like, one-of-a-kind kind of comic book things, like original art, and I got, like, CGC books and expensive stuff like that. But one of the coolest things I have is I have this uh, Ninja Turtles book, a special limited edition Ninja Turtles book that came with one of the pencils that Kevin Eastman used to draw the comic book. Well, that's neat. So I was thinking the next coolest kind of thing to get like that would probably be, like, one of Jack Kirby's old discarded pencils, because that thing must be... Like the heaviest thing to lift, it, it'd be like almost like Thor's hammer. You don't feel worthy <laughs> to lift it, and it probably is full of all kinds of cool cosmic energy too. <laughs> That's a good one. That's pretty cool. I don't know. I'll give you another minute to think about it here, Michael, because, you know, for me, I have a very special poster hanging up in my office that is a framed promotional poster for the Ray ongoing series from the 90s with this live model just looking so cool. They had this effect to his hand like it's glowing. And I want the jacket that is being worn by that live action model because, you know, they custom made it just for that. It was a Joe Quesada design that he did for the miniseries, just recreating the Ray to make him an awesome character. That's initially what caught my attention as a kid. It's why I thought it was so cool. So I think for me, that's the piece of comic book history I want to own. I realize it's missing from my wardrobe. I need it. And then I would like wear it around to a convention and just see if anybody picks up. I'd never be as good looking as that model. But somebody read like, hey, I know that jacket. I'll be like, yeah, man, you get it. I like that. I like that. You know what I would love, honestly, is the original Batman design by Bob Kane. Like the blonde-haired, domino mask, red costume image. And just be like, this is what Batman could have been. Just have that original thing. That would have been so interesting to me. Just to even see it, let alone own it, would be kind of cool. Wow, yeah, that would be a biggie and a very on brand for you. But Gabe, what do we have next here? Techno Comics announces that Leonard Nimoy, whose name has appeared on their Primordial comic book for an entire year, will, wait for it, finally plot two issues of the book <laughs> as part of an Origins miniseries. Also, to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Techno Comics, the publisher is packing in a free number one issue of all their early titles with the purchase of any current comic book purchased in November. So, fun little story here real quick. I was just at a comic book shop I got to visit recently for the first time, going through all their back issues, and I found a still polybagged issue of Primordials from this anniversary month that actually had another issue inside of it. I didn't pick it up. I didn't feel I needed it, but I did take a picture for social media, so that's at least somewhere to be seen. But did you ever read any techno comics there, Gabe? I've only seen them like in like the dirty leftover back issue bins where it's like 18 for a quarter kind of books, uh, things like that, buying collections throughout my life. I always find them in there, but I've never cracked one open. The only thing that is even slightly recognizable for me when I think of techno comics is that really cool logo of just like the robot hand holding up the metallic sign. Yeah. Really cool image of that. Besides that, 
the rest of the books didn't look as cool as that logo. Michael, back in the day, you're glancing over at some DC comics, and did you happen to see a Techno Comics title on the shelf? The only Techno thing I could think of is Techno Superdome, the game where I would play as Bo Jackson and run through the football <laughs> That's field. That's tech-mo, about it. Techno, <laughs> not Techno. It is Techno, yes, exactly. So. <laughs> So on my end of things, um, obviously recently I've been reading, you know, Mr. Hero, The Pneumatic Man, and Lady Justice, and some other ones that I've picked up for back issue bins, but at the time, seeing names like Leonard Nimoy, Mickey Spillane, told me that these were not aimed at kids of the 90s, maybe people in their 90s, so I ignored them. Uh, you know, it was just, you know, looking back now, again, as I'm getting familiar, I they did a very nice paper quality. The art was actually pretty good some decent artists in there they had nice just design overall like gabe was saying with the metal hand and all that kind of stuff but it definitely felt ultimately like the second coming of valiant in a lot of ways it was for older readers so they put big names on the covers that older readers would appreciate but you know getting back to like lady justice i think just like valiant has been resurrected i feel like lady justice is one of those titles that they could bring back now with a new creative team at back then it was dan brereton who did a lot of the art so it was very painted and all that but i feel like that would resonate with today's audience i won't spoil the premise for you but it is by neil gaiman so go look it up but primordials you can keep that yeah because to me leonard nimoy was the voice of galvatron i was like oh he's a really evil guy i don't want to read comic books written by galvatron he killed starscream <laughs> spoilers for the 1985 cartoon but yeah <laughs> I actually have two copies of Transformers the movie on VHS right here next to me. I was watching it this weekend. Oh, yes, that's awesome. Of course you do. Of course you do. Right now, he can probably reach it from where he is at this moment. You're not wrong. I literally have a three-tiered display shelf next to my desk here, and I have my Transformers shelf, and there they are. (laughs) All right, Michael, what do we have next here? So, Malibu Comics has teamed up with James Cameron, oh boy, here we go, <laughs> to produce a trio of Terminator 2 Judgment Day sequel comics. T2 Cybernetic Dawn picks up right after the events of the film in the present day, while T2 Nuclear Twilight stars a grown John, Car- John Connor in the year 2029. Wow, we are in 2022, guys. Just let that sink in for a second. 2029 is not that far away. And a zero issue will wrap up the stories from both books. Do you guys like the idea of TV or movie sequels done in comic book form? I'm going to take this one first because I have a lot of feelings about this. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Okay. I hate that Buffy the Vampire Slayer did their final season in comics. I hate that... Smallville did their season 11 in comics. They did great stuff in in the Smallville one in particular, but it's like, if you're going to do it, just make the show or make it as a TV movie or something. Just why not just do it? That's my rant. (laughs) You just want the real thing. I do. I'm like, I I went this far on the ride. Take me to the end. I want to see where it goes. I mean, here's what I'll say. The Batman 89 comic book got me back into a comic book shop on a monthly basis. I hadn't done that in years. So that must speak to some of my appreciation for that type of storytelling. But also, Michael, I know you were reading Superman 78, right? And the Batman 89? Yeah, I I don't like either of them. I dropped them both. (laughs) 
I literally <laughs> well, I, I I got through the first two episodes of Superman and I was like, this is really boring. I don't like it. And I haven't gotten past the first issue of the Batman book yet. I'm still working my way through it because they're making me mad. Sticking to your guns. All right. Well, I mean, I'll say for me just to expand a little bit more here. Just I like it if they have the likeness rights. If they cannot make the characters of the comic look like the iconic actors, then it's just like a generic story to me. It just doesn't feel the same. But if I love that universe and I love that look of everything and they replicate it perfectly, then I'm on board 100%. But don't try to sell me something that just has the title in it. Then I'm going to get you know upset and I'll just drop it pretty quick. How about you, Gabe? No, no, I like the idea of them being able to do that in certain situations. Not where it's like, you have to read this comic because this is the final, final chapter of the story that we couldn't afford to do on TV or something like that. It's nicer when they do it where it's like, like an offshoot or like an ancillary satellite story that isn't really the next step or you're missing out. Cause they did that with like, uh, Sons of Anarchy and they've done that to a lot of current shows as well, but it wasn't, it was always like kind of took place in the middle in between seasons. So it wasn't like if you missed out on the comic, you were missing out on like, uh, you know, the actual continuity of, of the series or anything like that. That's fun. But when you're like forced where it's like, yeah, sorry, the last thing that you're ever going to see for Stargate is going to be in this comic book series. So good luck finding a comic book store that's going to order it for you. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I think it's time to get into the continuing adventures of Wizard Magazine at our table of contents. Issue 51 of Wizard with a November 1995 cover date features an Andy Kubert Magneto cover with Fleer Flare coloring that is part of the new X-Men Fleer Ultra trading card series that is being drawn exclusively by the Kubert family of Adam, Andy, and their father, Joe. It says, uh, all X-Men, all Kubert, all Chromium, all on the ad. Uh, but as we look at this issue, it actually came packed with a promo trading card of Cyclops from that Fleer Ultra X-Men series, a mini-comic of the Max, and an order form for MTV Animation merch. What did you think about all these packets when you opened up your polybag there, Gabe? Oh, that order form for the Max MTV cartoon and for Aeon Flux... If I knew about that when I was younger, I would have totally ordered all of those t-shirts. Those things were great. I really feel bad that I missed out on being able to order those. But the card is really cool. The Cyclops card is cool looking. But these cards is really when it got to the end of things, when they started using this really washed out computer coloring or airbrushing or, or, or whatever it is. It, it's just really bad, especially when you got to, when you think about it, that you got Joe Kubert doing training cards for you. Joe Kubert, you know, from uh, all those war comics and Tarzan books is doing comic book cards of X-Men and it gets just washed out with this ridiculous coloring. That's that's the sad part about that, really. Yeah, I mean, and it feels like the Fleer Flare method of coloring would be better used if if it was for covering up people who can't draw. So just pay some no-name artists to do it, and then cover up their poor illustrations with Fleer Flare coloring. But speaking of the Cuberts, our cover story, Gene Pool, is yet another interview with the comic book artist siblings, Adam and Andy Cubert. The opening paragraph reveals that they were both, quote, heavily courted by acclaim to become part of its birthquake promotion, but decided in favor of exclusive contracts with Marvel, and they couldn't be happier. Oh, burn, acclaim comics. <laughs> I don't like that name, uh, birthquake. That just sounds really disturbing. Yeah, best not to visualize that. Some other 
fun facts here. Adam Kubert apparently was on the TV game show What's My Line as the youngest professional letterer in comics after he started working in that capacity at age 13. As far as the pair working together, they first collaborated in 1987 in the DC Comics Doc Savage series, alternating on penciling and inking every other issue. Just kind of trading off there. Uh, their most recent collaboration at this point had actually been their Wolverine vs. Sabretooth Jam cover for issue 38 of Wizard. It's strange that that was a year ago in the Wizard timeline because on our show it feels like we just did that interview. <laughs> we just covered that. So here we are back again with them. Uh, but they also mentioned here that Adam got the gig working with Larry Hama on Wolverine just by asking editor Bob Harris if he could. Hey, you ask, you shall receive. Uh, meanwhile, Harris asked Andy to take the job drawing X-Men after Jim Lee and Will Sportacio left to form Image. The brothers confirmed that they have no plans to leave Marvel since they are working with great characters. Adam says, quote, It may sound kind of geeky, but Wolverine is my favorite mutant character. I'm happy where I'm at. Andy admits that Gambit is his favorite X-Man. Quote, You've got the hair going, the beard going, and the coat, and just all kinds of neat stuff. <laughs> so we'll get back to the Cuberts in our Gambit's Deck of Cards segment. If you want to hear a little bit more about the Joe Cubert School, what it's like to play basketball with the Cubert brothers, you can check out our interview with Charlie LaGreca Velasco on our last episode of The Wizard Files. He gave us some great insight as to how fun it was to attend the Joe Cubert School. So Gabe, for you, Adam and Andy Cubert, where do you fall in your appreciation for their work? Uh, top 20? Fair enough. I like them good stuff, but it, I don't think they impressed me enough in this time frame to really be much higher for me. Yeah, I, I, they, they've never, I don't think they've ever left Marvel or DC. I think they've, they've stuck in that vein. I don't think they've ever done like a side project or worked for a different company. They, they'd stay there right with the company the whole time. Is that the same for like John Romita Jr. also? Cause I feel like if you're second generation Marvel artist, you just stay there. Like you, you don't try to branch out cause it's just family. It's a good gig. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I Your mean, grandfather John Romita Jr. was at, at DC for a long time and he just went back to Marvel. Oh, I didn't realize that. So recently he was at DC, huh? What about a uh, Kickass? Was it, I, I'm trying to think of that. One. I'm pretty sure that was technically an imprint of Marvel that they were at. Yeah. But this next article, Quiet on the Set, is a behind-the-scenes look at the final days of recording with the voice actors for X-Men the Animated Series after four seasons on the Fox Kids Network Saturday morning lineup. The reason that X-Men is being canceled is that it has reached 70 episodes, which is the mark that allows it to go into syndication so there's no financial need to invest in producing new episodes. Many fun facts, though, are revealed about making this hit cartoon. Firstly, that the original Night of the Sentinels two-parter, quote, was recorded in its entirety three different times. It was painful for the cast at first, but then we found our style and away we went. Wow. So that's kind of interesting. I can't believe that. But it's also mentioned that they actually auditioned Cajun actors to voice Gambit for authenticity, quote, but but their Cajun accent was so thick you couldn't understand them. So the role eventually went to Chris Potter, who played the son of David Carradine on Kung Fu The Legend Continues, that syndicated TV show. I never knew that. I watched that show. 
I remember it, yeah. Also, Allison Seeley Smith, the actress who played Storm in most of the seasons, actually re-recorded all the dialogue for previous episodes that she had not originally appeared in. So I'm wondering if what we hear now on Disney Plus is her voice consistently all the way through. That would be interesting to go back and check out. Now, Lenore Zahn, who plays Rogue, described as a Meg Ryan lookalike with, quote, that break in her voice, calls Rogue's Tale her favorite episode, because, you know, of course it is. Catherine Disher, who played Jean Grey, says, I enjoyed the last of the Phoenix episodes when I went up into the sun and burned myself up. (laughs) (laughs) Cal Dodd, who plays Wolverine, apparently took Jubilee voice actress Allison Court out for a beer after they finished recording and says at the end of the series, quote, Wolverine got his own comic and now he should get his own cartoon. That would be great. Though it's been 27 years, the series is finally continuing on with Disney Plus in 2023 launching X-Men 97, which is going to star the surviving members of the original cast. So that's something to look out for. But I got to ask you guys, at this point in 1995, were you sad that the X-Men cartoon was ending or were you kind of already over it? I was over it. I think after the Phoenix saga, I felt like I, I had seen all I needed to see, kind of grew tired of it. It and, like, I also recently rewatched the Spider-Man series. It doesn't hold up as well toward the tail end as the Batman series would, as opposed to, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I was kind of done with the show at that point. Because I think after the Dark Phoenix saga, I think that's when they outsourced the, the animation and it got real it, it was a total game changer it really changed the style of the show for like the last season or two and by then i was kind of over it because it's it wasn't the same for me at that point yeah see i was on the power rangers train when it came to fox kids programming at this point that in the spider-man cartoon were probably the main things i was watching even though i was most likely too old for both um, but I definitely, when it came to the X-Men show, when Cable showed up, I know that was fairly early on, but that's when I started tuning out because I had Cable's action figure just because everybody had Cable's action figure, but I didn't read X-Force at all, and I wasn't even heavy into X-Men comics if he had crossed over. I only had, like, the Executioner song part one still in the poly bag, so I was just like, okay, here's a character I don't know. I know the core group because I watched Pride of the X-Men growing up. I played the video game in the arcades. You know, I had some X-Men classics reprints, so I knew the core group. But Cable and the new generation just didn't connect for me as much. I was so excited when he showed up. That was I will great. say the same thing. Yes when, yes, when Cable showed up, that's where I first really learned of Cable. And I was like, wow, this guy's from the future. He's it's so weird. It's cool. I was I loved that part. Yes. Yeah, I was already deep into it. I was already in love with uh, cable at the time and strife. And I think they already had the executioner song done by then. So it was really great to see him show up. I love the whole wild man of Borneo like uh, line that he has in this episode. And he, he keeps popping up. He plays major roles in, uh, in seasons down the road where they really do a bunch of back and forth, uh, time sliding stuff too. So, well, you and probably everybody else. So I'm glad that he was celebrated by most. I just couldn't get on board that particular <laughs> bandwagon, but you know, I mean, I was just like, Hey, 
it's that guy. All right, <laughs> good enough. So next here, Crash the Party is an article by Jim McLaughlin detailing the final events of the three-day Avengers Creative Summit slash pool party that was held to plan the storylines for 1996. The event is attended by Mark Wade, Ralph Macchio, Bob Harris, Mark Grunewald, Terry Cavanaugh, William Mesner Loeb, Stan Abnett, Andy Lanning, and an assortment of other Marvel types. The books being discussed included Avengers, Captain America, Thor, and Iron Man. The first big news was the cancellation of Forceworks and War Machine, with the characters from those books being folded back into the main Avengers titles. Uh, An issue zero is suggested and shot down as, quote, more a marketing ploy than a true comic book product. After a a passionate discussion by the group, McLaughlin then comments, quote, I suddenly realized that I am sitting among 12 grown men talking about comic characters as if they were real people. Now I don't feel so bad about many of those late-night beer-soaked comic conversations with my buddies. Uh, It's then suggested that Iron Man be the first star of a bi-monthly team-up special series, which eventually is called Awesome Avengers. Gabe, do you know about Awesome Avengers? Did that come up in anybody's collections you had to buy? No, but I need to check this out. Right? uh, I'm pretty sure it might be the opposite of Awesome, but, you know, we'll find out. So about this Awesome Avengers team-up book, it's suggested that Hawkeye should be the partner for the first issue, and then Andy Lanning remarks, quote, I love to see Hawkeye anywhere. He's the original bad boy of comics. The original bad boy. Uh, But always the bridesmaid, never the bride. The Wasp is chosen instead of old Clint Barton. It is suggested also that the Avengers Mansion, quote, has to look more 90s. So design ideas are thrown around, including individual vroom rooms or holographic training centers attached to each Avengers personalized living quarters like they're saying Hercules you know he should have a uh, Roman columns and things like that the group also debates the name of a new Avengers title that would be using the old Forceworks characters and also the addition of two new characters to the roster one named Cybermancer and the other named Mask who was formerly Madam Mask the discussion of the new Avengers book is tabled because a sidebar reveals that the name the Mighty Avengers Avengers was chosen. So ultimately, that's what they went with. The sad part about all this is that these ideas will be forgotten when the hype of Heroes Reborn hits in 1996, and we will be covering that soon. But at least uh, Abnett and Lanning got flown out from England to attend a pool party. Huh? So did you guys read any of the Avengers titles at this time? Was that on your pull list, Gabe? No, that stuff was garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was not it, good. It, yes. that, that's the, the era that everybody likes to kind of joke about. It's kind of like the, the butt of everybody's jokes. It's kind of like when everybody says, 90s comics are the worst. They're really talking about this Avengers era because this is them with the leather jackets, which are cool. It was just these really like third string bench characters. Like, yeah, this is, like this Black is a real Knight. black eye on the Marvel yeah. Marvel. Uh, Avengers line, I'll tell you that much. Cersei was in there. I think it was like Crystal from uh, from the Inhumans. It was just like, I, I don't care about any one of these characters. I'm not reading a whole book of these people. Yeah, so the only Avengers thing that I was connected to at this time, and they mentioned it there, was Forceworks, and it was being canceled, you know? So I was picking up those issues, and I remember it being the basis of the Iron Man animated series. I was like, I know all these characters. They're at Forceworks. This is great. But then, yeah, it just didn't ultimately 
the, uh, I guess, that and the Fantastic Four cartoon were not huge hits, so they weren't really uh, needing to keep that synergy going. But jumping off of the uh, non-popular Avengers and into the always popular X-Men, Dynamic Duo is an interview with legendary writer of X-Men, and at this time, Sovereign 7, Chris Claremont, which was conducted by, what's this, Jim Lee? Jim Lee is doing an interview article for Wizard? It's true! So Lee gushes in the opening about Claremont and his love of uncanny X-Men as a kid, saying, quote, Luckily, Chris waited for me to grow up, go through college, and get hired by Marvel so I could eventually work with him. The two reminisce about their successful collaboration on Uncanny X-Men, and Jim asks under what circumstances Claremont would return to Marvel and or X-Men, to which Claremont replies, It's been four years, and the book has evolved in a vastly different direction. I would feel wrong coming in and just saying to them, Well, screw you. This is my stuff. I'm imposing my interpretation back on the X-Men. I'm going back to the way I thought it was cool. I think everybody would be okay with that, though. That's the John Byrne effect of returning the comic books. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that came before didn't matter. My way is the true continuity. This is what you should trust. But speaking of which, Claremont then goes on to comment about how artists like Frank Miller follow their muse to projects like Ronin or Sin City. But then he goes on to say about his former collaborator, quote, I look at a lot of John Byrne's stuff now, and I don't find the style of drawing comfortable to my eye as earlier work. I look at John's Babe, and I like it. I look at She-Hulk, and I don't know if it was just the goofiness of the stories, but I like it much more. When asked if there is an untold X-Men story left to be revealed, Claremont mentions an Excalibur graphic novel with Rick Leonardi he was going to do, but says otherwise, quote, As far as Marvel goes, I've pretty much done everybody. He's citing work on Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, The Avengers, and many more over the years. So turning to the present, he says, My first priority is to get Sovereign up and running. And a sidebar explains the premise of the book, which involves Claremont's creator-owned characters named Cascade, Cruiser, Rampart, Network, Reflex, Indigo, and Finale, or Finale, battling Cascade's evil mother Matrice and Darkseid of the DC Universe. So that's a pretty powerful team of villains. But let me ask you guys this. What is Claremont's greatest accomplishment in your mind? The fact that he bought an airplane using his royalties from X-Men number one. <laughs> Touche. Honestly, when you said Sovereign, I thought you were going to say that Chris Claremont was rebooting Shaman's Tears. I was like, I was going to put my headphones down and walk away. But that's it. I'm done for the night. I've had enough. Oh, by the way, Michael, so somebody was actually commenting on our social media today as I was preparing for the show because we mentioned that Shaman's Tears Turok Dinosaur Hunter crossover. Uh, I have some bad news for you. Apparently that never came out. I'm sure you saw that and were just very upset weeping openly about it. <laughs> so, you know, as far as what I think Chris Claremont's greatest accomplishment is, it's got to be the way that he established Wolverine's character into the iconic loner, you know, just like everything he did to give him his attitude, his famous quotes, you know, in that first miniseries. Uh, I think just his work on Wolverine in the 80s is what made the character this mega pop culture icon. He was awesome in X-Men, but I think that the Wolverine character was actually watered down being 
being part of a team, although he did, you know, have more heart and his relations to the members of the team and things like that. But all the characteristics that we think of as Wolverine that fans associate with the character, even just, you know, in the movies and everything else, that all came from Claremont. So even if you look at like, you know, Wolverine had an ongoing series for years, right? And my friend, you know, Jeff, aka Logan 77 on Twitter, who just gave us that awesome fan art. You guys haven't seen that go on our social media and check out his Wizards Half uh, original art that he gave to us. He is our Wolverine expert, and I feel like he would say that Larry Hama was probably just maintaining the status quo established by Chris Claremont. So that's kind of where I fall on that. I would say that's fair. Yeah, I agree. He made the character what he is. All right. And coming up next here, Strike a Pose is a diary of the photo shoot for the Evangeline Swimsuit Edition comic and calendar from Maximum Press, featuring model and inspiration for the character Kathy Christian, who was actually married to image publisher Tony Libido, says the model of the photo shoot, quote, all I had to do was pose and swing the sword. And of her gig in general, quote, hell, all I have to do is go to conventions and side things. Apparently, being a Vengeline is a breeze. A Vengeline actually goes on to star in many crossovers and special issues after this. We are actually going to be covering the first three issues of the Vengeline miniseries on our next mini-episode, so you can keep an eye out for that. But the other thing that was recently revealed on an episode of Observations by Rob Liefeld himself... Oh! Put a dollar in that jar! Busted. <laughs> well, yeah, so he said that Demi Moore was in talks very briefly to play Evangeline in a live-action film, and he is now shopping around the idea again for a live-action feature. So, I don't know if that profit movie ever gets made. Please, please, please. Isn't it greenlit with Jay Gyllenhaal? Well, I think he is signed on, and they have a director and a script, but there's no studio. It's not funded. Yeah, it's the same as uh, Tom McFarlane's Spawn when you had uh, Jamie Foxx, and it, it never went anywhere. Yeah, I mean, at least McFarlane has gotten a movie made at one time. So, yeah, I guess we will see how this plays out. But getting back to Evangeline here, I think it's just interesting because if you were reading Wizard Magazine back at this time, you definitely saw a lot of ads for her. I do not know how many people were picking up the comic. Did you guys ever take a stab at becoming a reader of Avengers? No, surprisingly, no, no. At this time, I I don't know what it was, but I really kind of stayed away from the bad girl phase of comics that was really spiking really hard right right now. I, I don't know too. why. Yeah, I mean, it was just like, I didn't. I felt uncomfortable going home with like Gen thirteen number one or Evangeline or like Lady Death and stuff like that. So I never got around to reading these this kind of stuff. But I'm buying it now. Well, obviously, I had no embarrassment in buying my Gen thirteen issues back in the day, but that's because it, it didn't really fall into the bad girl category. It was like fun adventure, cartoony superhero team. You know, is how I justified it. I guess. But when it comes to Evangeline, so I got to tell you this, I was traveling recently and on my way to the airport, I stopped at a used bookstore that I was just looking up. Are there any comic stores open? No, but this used bookstore is, and they had a huge comic book section just filled with trades, like shelves and shelves of them and some loose issues. So I'm flipping through the loose issues, you know, they're like a dollar a piece. And I 
get in there and I'm like, whoa, what is this? They're like just stacks and stacks of one particular comic. And what was it? It was the Chromium wraparound cover to Avengelin number one. They had so many of them. And then I look at another drawer and it was just filled with the photo cover. So I had to grab one of each because I was just like, this is obviously a miscalculation by somebody back in the day. They thought these were going to sell and they did not. And then they just dumped their old stock at this used bookstore. (laughs) But switching gears away here from the bad girls, maybe talking about bad boys, bad people comics. Uh, This next article is an interview called Body Count. It is with Stray Bullets creator David Lapham, who that name might sound familiar because he started out doing Harbinger and other comics at Valiant and then moved on to Warriors of Plasm and Defiant comics. So he was following Jim Shooter, but then they shut down and he said he took that opportunity to finally self-publish his idea for a comic, the ultraviolent Stray Bullets. And Lapham admits that he was a fan of Frank Miller's Sin City and Daredevil. And then they mentioned like, did you know that Frank Miller's a fan of your work? And he says, yeah, quote, it's kind of cool. <laughs> so Lapham reveals that his wife actually encouraged him to pursue his dreams. And she is now the publisher of Stray Bullets. His approach to creating Stray Bullets as an ongoing narrative of sorts, he says, quote, the most important thing to me is that each issue tells a complete story. And that's what they are. Like, I, I read through some of them, and they're basically like one-offs, I guess you would say. Uh, but then there are uh, characters that reoccur throughout. Now, it's also revealed that Lapham is not making Stray Bullets his life's work. He's not going to publish 300 issues like Cerebus. He says, quote, this is just one project in my life. Guys, Stray Bullets, did you read it? Did you know it existed? I heard about it much later on. I never read it, though. Yeah, same same with me. I heard about it later on, but I have read it. I own big, thick, like complete all-in-one omnibus of Stray Bullets, and it's a it's a messed up tale. I didn't, I've never heard about it before, but I found out about it back when like Bendis and all these crime novel, all these big crime comics are coming out. Like Brian Michael Bendis's stuff was coming out, Ed Brubaker stuff, Brian Azzarello with Hundred Bullets and things like that. I started. Yeah, I like Hundred Bullets. Hundred Bullets is fantastic. It's yeah. such a great underrated series. Nobody talks about it anymore. But as I would look at these writers and I would, I would look at what they were reading and they all were talking about Stray Bullets. I started picking up the Stray Bullet trade paperbacks and it's it's a messed up tale. I love David Lapham's stuff. He wrote my favorite Punisher book that is completely twisted and and and, and gnarly. Uh, he did Crossed. I don't know if you guys know what Crossed is from Avatar, but this book it, it, it's super depressing. It's really bad. It's sad. I, something's wrong with David Lapham. I don't know if he had like, a puppy <laughs> die on him every day of his childhood, but he's a really depressed uh, writer. But his artwork is fantastic in this stuff, though. But yeah, great series, black and white, but. Uh, you got to be into like some adult stuff to read it. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I just grabbed a couple to look at, and I was just like, just, you know, violent people making bad choices. It seems like everybody in this world is up to no good, and I just definitely not for me, not what I seek out in my comics. But uh, speaking of some darkness that might have been lit up by lip gloss, hey, I tried. Uh, first look, Witchblade is a preview of the Sarah Pizzini character from the upcoming Top Cow comic series, Witchblade, which doesn't even provide a full look at the heroine's iconic outfit and glove. It's just like a picture of her in an apartment. Uh, apparently, she had already debuted in the Cyblade She crossover, but Mark Silvestri is using the theater of the mind as he is helping the 
those who didn't read that comic saying, quote, yes, she's got big breasts, which is usually the way I draw anyway, which I did actually not find her to be overly voluptuous. She wasn't Lady Death anyway. And I, I love that this image in, in the issue here for here is that she's super kind of covered up and he's talking about, oh yeah, she has big boobs and stuff. And then, and then later in the series when I watch where it's going, it turns into like, a thong and like a, a really skimpy little brawl outfit. It gets really revealing down the road. Yeah. Of course, after this point, uh, Michael Turner and the character become insanely popular, which Blade even gets her own TV series. It's actually the only Sylvester property to get the live action treatment. Michael, you actually watched that series, right? Yeah, I watched a little bit of it. I, 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 I tried recently rewatching a little bit of it. I was like, wow, this show was bad. <laughs> But I I never watched it because it wasn't some hot chick running around in a metal bikini. Like It it was a a slightly older looking actress. She was a fully clothed detective the whole time that just had a cool glove. Yeah, no. Should have been played by Pamela Anderson or one of her co-stars from VIP. Yasmin Bleeth or something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Yasmin Bleeth would have been perfect if you were doing, like, the Roger Corbin New World Pictures trashy version of Witchblade. In fact, I think she actually did star in a movie I recall renting from Blockbuster back in the day where she was a superhero. What was that called? No, it was uh, Carmen Electra, the chosen one, Legend of the Rain. Even. And yeah, she gets some like sort of superpowers and a costume at the end. It was kind of just cheesy. Uh, <laughs> but Michael, did you ever give Witchblade a chance in the comics? No, never. Not once. <laughs> okay, because I thought for some reason this might be the one. It's got the cop drama in it and everything. Never bought a single issue. I watched the show a little bit because I, I knew it was a comic book property, but I just didn't buy any comics like my local comic book shop that back then didn't i don't even think they even carried it let alone if i if i did it was sold out before i got there so yeah well like i said neither did i uh but i did read it in preparation for the show i read like the first seven or eight issues and i the bad girl trend was not for me but as i look this over i can see why the character was popular because it actually is really well paced in terms of like the mystery of this gauntlet being revealed and the characters in play it's got great dialogue i really think you know it's it's a fun world that's created and it keeps you involved the michael turner art obviously is beautiful but that's probably my main criticism because everyone he draws is too beautiful it takes me out of the story it's like a parallel dimension where everyone is cindy crawford and fabio you know, it's just like beautiful men and women everywhere. <laughs> Give me an ugly person, Michael Turner. Give me someone ugly back here. Yeah, so the, uh, I could see the draw of it, and Gabe, you told me where it goes eventually. So I guess I can imagine that's what kept it afloat. All right, well, as we close out here, we get uh, maybe to the opposite of beautiful people in comics with Palmer's Picks this month. You know, we don't always cover the Palmer's Picks indie scene, but Harvey Picar and his comics like American Splendor are covered here, and it's revealed he's been doing this kind of autobiographical comic style since 1972. Says Picar himself, quote, I don't really care if people like me. I just want them to like my writing. You can deal with any type 
a story or issue in comics just the same way you can in film and TV, and you have access to any number of illustrative styles. So while Picar focuses on the stories of his everyday life with illustrators like Robert Crumb, his wife Joyce Brabner, who is also making comics, she focuses on stories of social justice and political activism with illustrators like Bill Sienkiewicz. Uh, now, when the two actually work together on a book called Our Cancer Year about Harvey dealing with his own health issues, they were nominated for an Eisner Award. Didn't win, but they were nominated, I think, for two or something like that. But Brabner says, quote, I'm losing out by being married to Harvey. I don't get to look forward to the new issue of American Splendor and read it. Picar would also appear on the David Letterman show and eventually be the subject of a movie, as most people probably know him best from the Paul Giamatti film. It's also worth mentioning that one of our early interview subjects, the infamous Chris Ward, who used to handle the Magic Words letter column, he actually told us that he became really good friends with Harvey Picar and had some wild adventures on the road and elsewhere with him. So if you want more details, you can go back and listen to episode three of The Wizard Files. Very entertaining. But uh, I have to ask you guys, though, did you ever read Harvey P. Carr's comics work? Is that any type of comic that you were attracted to? Michael, I was thinking specifically with your love of David Letterman that you would have caught him at some point on that show, because it was infamous. Not that I can recall. I watched it a lot, so oh, I don't remember. Out. But you're talking you're about 30 years ago now. It's hard to remember. Almost. Here's the thing. You need to, everybody watches if you don't know about this you need to look up harvey Picar going on david letterman because they would literally fight each other on this on set they really arguments and they really had this really bad relationship and i think later on after harvey Picar died david letterman said that was that like kind of one of his regrets he had is just the way he treated and the whole show treated harvey because they just really poked at him and he would just explode for being such a little guy it's wild wild stuff I was one of the ones that I first discovered it because of the, the, the cancer year story. And then I also was well, probably like, you know, maybe the one of 10 people who actually saw the American Splendor movie in theaters and loved it. It's a great movie. His stuff is really well done. He gets all these different famous cartoonists to do his work, you know, for just like a nobody. He would get the biggest artist or award to do his books for him and stuff like that. And then, you know, a lot of new talent came out, too. But read that stuff. I really got into um, Ed Piscor stuff, who did like Hip Hop Family Tree. Some of his early work was working on American Splendor with Harvey Picard. So it's fun stuff. It's just your everyday life, you know, kind of storyline. It's really just a, a slice of his own life and how his day went. Yeah, and I think for me, that's what it is, is that it's just an illustrated diary. You know, it's just the stories of his life. And I don't think it's that extraordinary. It's not that interesting, you know, from just every everyday life like i mean what's the big deal besides he's been on david letterman and i haven't <laughs> you know like he's somebody i would talk to at a bus stop and probably reluctantly like he would be talking at me not someone i re- want to read the story of his life you know like i remember just like one scene of the movie really which had nothing to do with his life it had everything to do with it being kind of meta and breaking the fourth wall and the real harvey p car is there kind of criticizing <laughs> the film and all that stuff but i guess what it comes down to is if i'm gonna read something that's like a black and white comic that generally is just following the lives of people i'd rather they be fictional so something like love and rockets from the hernandez brothers like that interests me and they take their worlds and you know kind of expand them in interesting ways but yeah for me i just i have an issue of american splendor that i got in like 
my mystery pack of comics, but it wasn't a mystery that I was excited uh, to uncover. But speaking of those fictional characters I'd rather see on screen, Michael, I think it's time to start up the projector for... Heroes in Motion. Okay, so an update on the live-action Spawn movie reveals that approval for a fourth draft of the script, which removed some gruesome elements of the proposed PG-13 rated movie estimated at $40 million, is still in the process. Although they're planning to start filming at the end of 1995, Wizard says, don't expect this movie anytime soon. More than 10 months of work of special effects will still be needed, meaning the final product won't be ready until... Thanksgiving of 1996, although associate producer Terry Fitzgerald says we're discussing the possibility of holding it for a release of summer 1997, which is what ended up happening. And I don't know if it really helped holding the special effects to that much longer, but there you go. (laughs) According to Fitzgerald, the best part of the whole movie is the clown. Agree or disagree? I think he was the most annoying part of the movie. Oh, he's the worst part of the movie. Yeah. The worst. The worst. Wait, wait. Do you think he's worse than the uh, CGI Malbolgia? With barely moving mouth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, all right. Maybe the second worst. There you uh, go. Honestly, the be- the best part of the movie, bar none, is Michael Jai White. He is just amazing. He is intense. But, you know, I would say, you know, John Leguizamo is the one really giving a unique performance and he's true to the character and he's doing what he needs to do. I mean, the point of the clown is to be a pain in Spawn's butt, you know? I mean, the other bad guys are just mustache-twirling hams and, you know, Martin Sheen I'm sure has no idea what he is doing in that movie. Why am I here? But then, you know, you get to the clown, the violator, he's so gleefully annoying that I say mission accomplished. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) The first 13 episodes of Superman, the animated series, are in the works with Paul Dini and Bruce Timm, according to Dini. What I can tell you is that visually the show will not be as dark as Batman and that the show will not be camp. As far as guest appearances by the Cape Crusader are concerned, originally we wanted Batman to appear sometime in the first 13 episodes, but now it looks like it won't happen until sometime in 1997. Did you guys watch as much of Superman the Animated Series as you would have with Batman? I was there day one. I was a charter viewer of the Superman uh, animated show. I remember when WB was counting down the days and they made like a big presentation and it had like a host introduce it. It was a big ordeal and I was in. I love that series. I got the DVD set of that series. I watched probably more of that than I probably did of Batman because once the once Batman turned into the new adventures of Batman and Robin and the, the, the style changed and the character designs changed and it wasn't that Bruce Tim look anymore, I was out. For me, I would have to say my love of Batman the animated series definitely did not carry over to the Superman animated series. Like I remember catching a few episodes 
episodes when it premiered on Kids WB and thinking, okay, Lois Lane is a cool character. I thought Dana Delaney made her awesome. But Superman's rogues gallery is just, it's not as fun as Batman's. I miss like the street level action and of course like the Joker and other, you know, characters that seem like they had more going on. Like Superman always felt like he's fighting aliens or giant robots or things like that. It, it never caught on. Um, for me, if I was watching Kids WB, it was the zaniness of Freakazoid. I mean, that was way more up my alley. I love Freakazoid. He got his powers from the internet. As do we all, right? <laughs> How about you, Michael? Superman the Animated Series, were you a fan? I'm, I'm still hung up on Freakazoid. Um, you know, I, I really did like the Superman Animated Series. I didn't like it as much as Batman the Animated Series, but yes, I agree. Once Batman went, like, the new adventure thing, it was... I, I was lost interest on that. But I did love the Batman-Superman crossover with Lex and the Joker and the whole thing. Was the pilot episode of Superman Lobo showing up? No, like it's basically in a lot of ways like the opening of Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. It just spends a lot of time on Krypton and it's uh, there's barely any Superman until the second half of the two-parter. Yeah, I I remember watching the Lobo ones and a few other episodes, but like I don't even know if I could remember the pilot if if I had to. Yeah, I rewatched the pilot recently on HBO Max and I realized why I didn't stick around (laughs) (laughs) i need to go back and watch but michael i think we have some more news about guys who like to make super extreme awesome action okay here we go in image comics tv and movie news eric larson's savage dragon has been turned into an animated series for usa network cable channel producer dan fawcett remarks eric larson has a unique style but it doesn't translate well to animation we went through (laughs) 30 character designs early in the process, but we finally got it right. Jim Cummins, veteran voice actor of Winnie the Pooh, Tigger, Darkwing Duck, and so many more character roles is voicing the dragon. This series is currently available on the Peacock Network. Have either of you ever seen a single episode of Savage Dragon? I'm going to take a wild guess and say you both watched it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I did. And it's bad. It is rough. It's it's funny how they were saying that his style doesn't mix well in the animation. No, because Savage Dragon is a incredibly violent and at sometimes raunchy and controversial comic book. I don't know what they had to do to just make it so homogenized so that it could be on, on a regular kids network cartoon show. It is a raunchy comic book, but the, the cartoon is, it's just bad animation. Like there's a lot of size issues with it. Uh, the coloring is off on those things. It's, it's, it's odd. It's odd. Hmm. What about you, Adam? Did you ever watch it or what? I mean, I did catch it, but I get, I wasn't reading the comics, so it wasn't appointment television for me, but I just loved the USA network in general. Like, you know, during the summers, I would just watch eighties reruns, like just the 10 of us or my two dads. <laughs> and then like, you know, uh, Hanna Barbera cartoons on cartoon Express. And even, you know, I enjoyed like being over at a friend's house and the naughtiness of USA up all night, you know? (laughs) 
The naughtiness. Listen to you. Oh, the naughtiness of USA Up All Night. Now, if they had made the Savage Dragon exclusively for the USA Up All Night crowd, you know, compete with MTV's Liquid Television or Oddities, that would have been something. I feel like nowadays they would have made it, like, rated M for television because it was on cable, but they weren't doing anything special with it, you know? So I much rather would have been watching Biker Mice from Mars, and I was. Or the Wildcats cartoon. Yeah, but I feel like Wildcats was the same thing as Savage Dragon. They just took everything that was cool and totally watered it down. Made it, you know. Equally horrible? (laughs) Pretty much. It's got the best opening theme song of any cartoon series. It's amazing. I'm afraid that title belongs to King Arthur and the Knights of Justice, my friend. That's another great one, yes. Oh, boy, I'm I'm in the wrong podcast tonight. (laughs) We can talk about about, uh, King Arthur. We can talk about Pirates of Dark Water. SWAT Cats. Uh, SWAT Cats. It's coming back. Yeah. What? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Either I blocked these from my memory or I just... This was not on my radar. This this must be a West Coast kid thing because I oh didn't that see California any. kids oh, program. Oh no, here we go. Young Blood is again being developed for an animated miniseries for the Fox Network, and a script has been written by Marty Eisenberg and Bob Skur, whose credits include Batman the Animated Series, X Men, and Spider Man. A Cyber Force cartoon is also part of this deal. Uh, Glob Kreifeld revealed on a recent episode of his podcast, it was sabotaged, of course it was sabotaged behind the scenes, Blob Kreifeld, by Marvel Animation executives who threatened to not give Fox any more Marvel-based cartoons if the broadcast of image-related shows. It's all a conspiracy. They were just too popular, Michael. They were a threat to the Marvel Empire. Freaking egomaniac. Oh, my God. Oh. I feel bad that Rob Liefeld got treated so bad back then. That's too bad. I would love to have seen Cyber Force. You can see the the Young Blood like opening sequence on YouTube. It is pretty cool looking. Yeah, that was gonna be fun. But yeah, I I, I wish we, this would have happened. You know, too bad. It is what it is. I have to imagine if all of these cartoons had actually been created, they would have in this day and age made a mashup video, been like, oh, here's the Image Universe crossover fan film. You know, and they would have just mashed up, you know, different parts of different episodes. Episodes, but uh, alas, we only ever got Spawn and Savage Dragon and Wildcat. Oh, and Gen 13, my beloved Gen 13 movie. So I guess it still could be done. Sure. You that Spawn it. cartoon is one of the greatest comic book related adaptations ever. It's fantastic. That one is pretty good. I do like the Spawn cartoon because they went for it in that one. You know, it's, it's different than anything else. Okay. Wesley Snipes wants to develop a live-action Shadowhawk TV series based on the Jim Valentino comic book, though the creator is reluctant to pursue it. I don't like to deal with Hollywood. <laughs> that is like money, apparently, because that's... <laughs> well, I have those sweet image books. It's also mentioned briefly that the direct-to-video animated Gen 13 movie will both have a PG and PG-13 rating or even an R-rated cut when it's officially released in 1996, which it never was. Aw, oh, man. But, uh, you know, Jim Valentino, another Orange County guy, Gabe, did he ever show up at any of the comic book stores you were frequenting for a signing? Did you ever meet him? No, he's. I think he's one of the only founding members of Image I haven't met. He's kind of re- like, recluse or kind of reluctant to go out. I'm not sure. 
but and he's 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 the oldest one of the bunch too, so he's kind of you know uh, at that point of things as well. I think. Oh no, 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 no! I got to read this now. Oh no! Finally, it's confirmed that Joel Schumacher will return to direct the next Batman film, which might be called Batman and Robin. While Val Kilmer and Chris O'Donnell are likely to return, not so much to the title roles. The villains are confirmed as Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy, but with Patrick Stewart rumored as a possible Mr. Freeze and Demi Moore or Julia Roberts as Poison Ivy. Okay, let's start with what do you guys think about Patrick Stewart as Mr. Freeze? Well, I think that Patrick Stewart would have been great as Mr. Freeze. Like, it would have been much closer to the animated series Heart of Ice story. Like, he could have given it that gravitas. But the reception of that film, I feel like, unfortunately, would have soured him on superhero movies. And so he might not have taken the Professor X role in the 2000 X-Men movie, and that would have been a real crime. So I think it's ultimately a good thing that this was maybe just a rumor. Yeah. I would have to agree with that. I would think the silliness of uh, of how this show or how this movie actually turned out, the very campiness of it, I don't think he would have fit in in the first place. I, I think that would have been a bad fit. And the over-the-top Arnold Schwarzenegger really did fit in with the colorful, campy nonsense that this movie actually was. Yeah. Now, with regards to Poison Ivy, I honestly could actually visually imagine Demi Moore as Poison Ivy. Yeah, I don't know, definitely. I don't know so much about Julia Roberts, no. but I could see Demi Moore in that role if the movie wasn't campy like it was. Yeah, I think she could have given a really intense, like kind of angry performance, and then a little bit of a seductress, you know, all those pieces. Yeah. Have you guys seen um, the Val Kilmer documentary? Oh, yeah. That came out of- yeah, yeah. So, so like... He speaks in great length as to why he did not want to do another Batman movie. And it's very interesting what he has to say. Like, he hated it so much playing Batman because of the way the costume was and how restrictive it was and the whole thing. He couldn't. Yeah, basically, he's just complaining. He couldn't hear anything in the cowl and he just felt like a prop that they were moving around, didn't get to actually act. Yeah, and it's so interesting because he did play a very good Bruce Wayne. Like, I I could see him as Bruce Wayne, and I could see him, if it was a darker version of that movie, as a decent Batman, because he did fill out the costume well. But after he he talked about it in the doc, I'm like, wow, I could see why he would bail out. He's just not that kind of actor. It really seemed like they tried to cast this movie like it was going to be a darker, more serious, like, direct sequel to the first two. Yeah. But it wasn't. And maybe Val Kilmer just got signed. He signed on too early and then they changed it on him and he still had to go with the contract and and act in that movie. Seems like it. Speaking of casting comic book characters, this issue features a casting call for a live action The Tick movie. Of course, The Tick eventually gets two different live action television series over the years, but never makes it to the big screen. Okay, so let's take a look at this casting call. This is amazing to me, just the the bonkers choices they're making. So, for the Tick himself, you know, the mighty blue justice, they have selected... John Tesh, yes, the co-host at this time of Entertainment Tonight and future reviled musician. (laughs) I mean, John Tesh is not an actor. He's a TV personality, but I don't know that he has any acting chops. 
I mean, personally, when I think of an actor from the 90s, and this is a little bit later, but one that I think could really pull it off is Brian Cranston. Not Breaking <laughs> Bad, Brian Cranston, but from his Malcolm in the Middle days, if he played that, like, befuddled dad character, I think he could have knocked the tick out of the park. He would have been fantastic. John Tesh thing is weird. It's like, that just that, that's what it is. It's the chin. That's basically what they looked at. Well, they could have so, picked Jay Leno, then. They sure could have. <laughs> you know, Arthur. I saw it. So the next one up they have is Arthur, the tick's sidekick, and they chose Rick Moranis. And I would say... Yeah, that's pretty spot on. I would, I would yeah, buy Yeah, that. that's solid, solid cast. Was this during a time when Rick Moranis was no longer doing movies? No, because he had just done, like, the Flintstones and Little Giants and Big Bully. Okay, but that's a spot on uh, pick, though. I agree. So next we have the Flyer Mouse. They went with Bruce Campbell from Army of Darkness and all the Spider-Man movies that he pops up in and so on. I don't know. I mean, sure, fine. Okay. I think he would have been a better tick than, uh, of course, yeah, he's got the probably. chin. You're right. Over there. Yeah. He's got the chin. He, he's, he's over the top and kind of flamboyant and crazy. I think he could have done a better job. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, he would make a good deflighter mouse too, just based on kind of the weaselly, kind of overblown, you know, heroics, but actually a coward underneath. But I still think, yeah, the tick would have been good too. So next up, we have American Maid, and they picked Terry Hatcher. Eh, all right. Sure. Yeah, I don't know about that, because I look at American Maid, and I definitely see Sean Young. She is the actress yes. that comes to okay. mind for me. Well, she'll do anything for a role. You've heard about her Catwoman auditions, haven't you? Oh, yes. Uh, but poor oh, Sean God. Young. She's a good actress. <laughs> and I like her. I like Sean Young. But yeah, that's a bad story. But uh yeah, I can see that. All right. I'll, I'll go with that. All right. So next up here for Arthur's sister, Dot, they want to cast an actress named Cynthia Stevens. And she is someone who I remember from the 90s being in a lot of projects and TV shows. She has had kind of a weird voice and interesting demeanor. But what they specifically reference her being from here is the sitcom Bob. And do you remember, Michael, the long run that Wizard was on reporting on the Bob sitcom about a comic book artist working in a bullpen? And, you know, we read the Mad Dog comics and all that, but she was the daughter. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, great, cool, sure. Yeah, needs needs a job, I guess, needs work. <laughs> so, cast her. Oh, boy. So next up, we have the Human Bullet, and they chose Brian... Ben Ben from Dream On. Which to me is just, it's the funniest name in Hollywood of the 90s. Brian Ben Ben. It's like the current Imogen Poots. Uh, it's probably the funniest name in Hollywood these days. <laughs> it's like, he's a man with three first names. Come in, please. Uh, all right, sure. I mean, Human Bullet is like jacked. And, and I remember watching Dream On. That guy wasn't jacked for sure. You could just pick any generic actor. Exactly. Who cares? <laughs> you could have got a wrestler. He's central casting. Okay. This one is really weird. And if you had to ask me, the actor that they picked would never, ever, ever go for this role. Sewer Urchin, they're saying Dustin Hoffman. There's 
no way <laughs> Dustin Hoffman would do a, a character named Sewer Urchin. Well, Michael, the reasoning they have for this, I'm almost certain, is that the Sewer Urchin character, as played by Jess Harnell, who did his voice, was based on the Dustin Hoffman character from Rain Man. So he's always like, yeah, definitely bad, definitely bad, Tick. So that's why they were going with that. And they definitely get cancel culture today. Definitely cancel culture today. But I agree. I don't think Dustin Hoffman would would, would, would turn back after playing the role of a, of a high-functioning uh, autistic person and then use that as a as kind of a gag role inside the tick. But remember, guys, he had just done Hook. He was terribly embarrassed by it, but he was making kind of ridiculous movies at this moment in time. I That's would be one too. of the greatest things he's ever done, though. I agree. And uh, if you guys want to hear more conversation about Hook from Michael and I, you can check out Box Office 30 here on the Retro Network, the Hook episode where we discussed it at length. Where I hate on it for two hours. While Pete and I just <laughs> oh, gush over how fantastic so and nostalgic much. it is. All right, Gabe, why don't you tell us about their choices for villain casting? For the villains we got here for Dinosaur Neil. Uh, they, they picked NYPD blue actor Nick Totoro. I guess because he's got a mustache? Yeah, you can grow facial <laughs> like, hair, you're in. Any, I guess anybody that can grow a mustache, like they get a bearded woman from the circus, just kind of another placeholder spot for this role. I don't know. <laughs> but interesting, I think Dinosaur Neil, I think that episode is one of the episodes that is for, I guess, rights issue, it's never been released on DVD. I think they always leave that one out. They saved him with aspirin. So I actually just picked up the DVD for my son. We went on a tick binge watch of the first two seasons, and the Dinosaur Neil episode is in there, but I think they may have cut out the word aspirin. But yeah, definitely it's there, but maybe in syndication they pulled it or something back in the day. And then we got El Seed, which uh, they went with my main man from Fantasy Island, the one and only uh, Ricardo Montalban, which I yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, yes. that, that's a that's a perfect pick. I've loved to see him in that outfit. And he got comedy because he was in the first Naked Gun movie. Yeah, and he needed the work. Today he'd be doing cameos. <laughs> and then uh, my, my favorite villain from the Tick is Chairface Chippendale. And, and on here, they got actor John Cleese from A Fish Called Wanda and Splitting Hairs. What, he's too good for Monty Python now? They can't put that there? His face looks nothing like a chair. Um, yeah. I don't know where they're going with this. <laughs> And, and, and CGI wasn't advanced enough yet to even pull that one off. Then you so. just get Stan Winston's studio to do some practical effects, you know, like they do like the headless horseman kind of outfits where the shoulders go above the head. And then instead of like a pumpkin up there, you put a chair. Sure. And I, I just think all of these casting choices were pretty spot on, but I need a Bruce Campbell and Rick Moranis tick movie. I mean, that's just a missed opportunity from the 90s. Come on, at least on cable. Today, it, it would have been like the, it would be like The Rock and, uh, Kevin Hart. <laughs> Kevin Hart, yeah. No, don't say it too loud, guys. If you just shout out a movie premise that could potentially star The Rock, he will agree to it. That's how things work. But guys, you know, we already talked about a lot of those image movies and cartoons that never got made, but there's a couple other guys over at Image with a better track record, so it's time that we rev up Jim and Todd's Hype Machine. All 
right, guys. So Todd's ego column this month shares some of the letters McFarlane asked readers to write in in issues 46 and 47 of Wizard. The first topic he wanted to know about was what readers wanted to see in Spawn comics. And fans responded that they did not want crossovers or to see Spawn die. They just want cool new characters introduced into the Spawn universe. Now, Gabe, I know that on your YouTube channel, you have opened some very high-end Spawn collectibles, so you're obviously a fan there. Uh, what can you tell us about your relationship with Todd McFarlane's number one creation? Oh, I, I love Spawn. Spawn was always a really good comic. Just the weird controversial things that happened there with, you know, like the Neil Gaiman lawsuits and having like Alan Moore on there and like Dave Sims and things like that and going on. But uh, that's all fantastic. So my favorite stuff for Spawn was really seeing Greg Capullo become Greg Capullo. He starts out as the X-Force artist Greg Capullo and then he slowly turns into the creepy dark Greg Capullo and that's one of the best things about that series. Not so much the stories uh, <laughs> or anything like that. It's really seeing Greg Capullo really come into and grow into uh, becoming the hot artist that he is now. But yeah, this kind of stuff here like not killing Spawn, whoops happened anyways, you know so <laughs> I don't know what you want. Now the second topic that Todd asked readers to write in about was to share what their favorite comic book store was doing to earn their business. And so the first letter by a guy named Rodrigo de Alvarado Rig gives a glowing review of a comic book store owner named Brooks Kelly, who ran Action Comic Book Store in Great Falls, Montana. Now, this store was in the area that my wife grew up in. Of course, she had never been there. She didn't know it existed. But my brother-in-law bought Magic the Gathering cards from this establishment in high school. So I looked it up. I said, is this still in business? And wouldn't you know it? Yes, it was. So I called up Brooks himself, spoke to him on the phone. He's still running the store 27 years later, and I'm asking him if he had any recollection of being featured in Wizard. And he actually didn't, but he's just a real character, because I ended up having a 30-minute conversation with this 63-year-old rascal, I would call him. <laughs> and uh, he is going to be a guest on the Wizard Files in the future, because as you can imagine, he's got a lot of stories but I actually got a chance to go out and visit his store recently when we were visiting my in-laws and I just got left in town for the day and I spent two hours there. Like the first hour was just going through all their back issue bins. They have a fantastic back issue catalog and setup, got some great stuff. But then afterwards when he realized it was me because I had all my wizards regalia on, uh, we just started talking and yes, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to getting all his stories. But that was just really neat, right? Because the funniest thing is in wizard 50 they made it a point to say that they had gotten zero letters from montana mm -hmm. and here they are in issue 51 printing a letter from montana <laughs> it's almost as like they did that on purpose like you just never know and just fun that you know you could actually still be in touch with somebody that they were talking about in wizard magazine in 1995 yeah. now there actually is no jim lee news to speak of other than that interview with chris claremont so we just got to get to the tally. In this issue, Jim Lee is mentioned four times, Todd McFarlane five times, which brings our running total to Jim Lee 280 mentions, Todd McFarlane 309. Uh-oh. Wow. Uh -oh. Running away with it. It's all right. Jim's going to come back soon, and he's just going to take over. All right. Well, there's your prediction from Gabe. Jim Lee will come out on top. But, you know, we also love around here our trading cards. So I think, Michael, it's time that we open up. Gambit's deck of cards. 
All right. As a follow-up to the Marvel vs. DC crossover comics announcement, we're going to be talking about Skybox and how they're going to be producing a 100-card set with art by Jimmy Palmiotti, Joe Quesada, Jim Ballant, John Byrne, Joe Jesco, Boris Vallejo, the Rascally Cubert Brothers, and several other artists. Uh, the cardbacks will be narrated by Peter Parker or Clark Kent, each giving their thoughts on the characters from the other universe. The voting val- ballot will also be included in the card pack, so buyers can vote on who should win in the comics. Did you guys ever pick up a pack of these? I had a whole set. Whoa, all I, right. I, I was buying these things like a, like a maniac. These things were awesome. Yeah, I only ever bought like one pack, but I liked them. They were cool. Yeah, it was cool I, having uh, Clark Kent talking about Marvel and then Peter Parker talking about DC characters. Seeing that stuff is really cool, too. And look yeah, at the I hot think, artist. I think I may have bought a pack or two back in the day, but I wouldn't know where they are at this point for sure. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> now, continuing with the synergy between Wizard Magazine and Fleer trading cards, there is a four-page ad for the Fleer Ultra X-Men card set drawn by the Cubert family with coloring by Fleer artist Jung. We'll get more into that a little bit later. They promise 100 all-chromium cards of original art plus a subset of gold signature cards. Ugh! Signature subsets, no! Uh, 20 embossed cards and 9 hollow flash cards. Of creating the set, Adam and Andy explained that they took turns picking which characters they wanted to draw and then left the rest for their father, Joe. Quote, We gave him the ones neither of us wanted to do. To him, it didn't matter. Since he doesn't know the X-Men, the cool part was to see his interpretation the brothers did have one complaint however quote i wish they would print the pencils that we did my dad did his in pen and ink and his were gorgeous before they colored them it's so different from what we did i guess it depends on who's looking at it it just comes out looking like a painted card if you like painted cards you're gonna love this (laughs) so yeah a little uh, crafty there the way that they're choosing to express their displeasure (laughs) we hate it but you paid us (laughs) exactly Uh, real quick, Adam, I think this was the card set that broke me. I think this is about the time where I stepped out of getting cards because when they started doing this, it was everywhere. Like every card set after this had that same coloring effect. And I, even to today, I hate it. It's, it's, it's terrible. <laughs> I think this is the stuff that made me fall out of it. Cause I know you had a card set earlier you talked about. I made you stop. Yeah. Marvel Metal was that for yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. I think this is the it for me. I remember, I remember buying these and then just like, ah, oh, these are just not cool. <laughs> Okay, so Comic Images is producing a set of cards based on non-DC or Marvel Golden Age characters who are likely to be, at this point, public domain, such as Amazing Man, Blue Beetle, Green Mask, Silver Streak, and more. Classic heroes you young whippersnappers never heard of. Now, here's a question, though, like... Yeah, Blue Beetle, right? Blue Beetle is a DC character. Technically, you know, Captain Marvel Shazam was not always a DC character. Miracle Man wasn't always a Marvel character. That could exist, too, you know? Yeah, because, like, with Blue Beetle, I was wondering if there was some distinction between the Golden Age version and then the Charlton version that DC is, you know, they bought the Charlton Blue Beetle, which I know was based on the original character, but I think just in name only, because they kind of redid the premise, right, with being Ted Cord. Speaking of Blue Beetle, uh, Booster Gold is going to be appearing in, the, in this season of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Finally, right? Played by Donald Faison. 
Really? Oh, is That's he? Okay, great. so he's playing. Wow. Okay, yeah. they. I saw the, the little. I just read the headline that just said he's gonna be playing some uh, a popularity seeking character. And I was like, I was like, that could be Booster Gold. That'd be kind of cool. They, they use the word he's seeking a boost from other heroes. Is what ah, okay, so that'd be fun. But yeah, the Blue Beetle from this is it's a totally different kind of Blue Beetle. It's not the Charlton character. It's just like how there's like a Golden Age Daredevil. It's a completely different character. But who's buying these? Who's buying like <laughs> no one. these card no sets? One. Like no young Whippersnapper is like the people who talk like that didn't even care about these cards. Yeah. These characters are so old. But finally, Mark Silvestri is releasing the 72 card Cyberforce Finest Series through Tops Chase Cards featuring art by the awesome, incredible Jay Lee, good old J. Scott Campbell, and Walt Simonson, the legendary Walt Simonson doing work on these two. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I like Cyberforce, but for whatever it was, Image did like the worst card sets. Like all their card sets were really, I don't know if it was like something to do with the printing or the art that they just never really worked for me. Yeah. And you know, cause what it is, is I think the downfall in a lot of ways of the image product outside of comics and even inside the comics is that the original creators who were the reason people were buying the books so quickly handed off their art chores to other artists and they just became the guys running the studios. Right. So, and that, you know, that translated to the card sets and everything else and like for example like i remember buying my gen 13 cards and then being disappointed because i want j scott campbell art or at the very least jim lee art but most of the set is all these artists i've never heard of and it's always like in these listings they give us a wizard they just say featuring art by and then they mention like five or six other artists it's never the one who originated the characters yeah you'd be like you get a pack of cards and then eight of them were, were, were ugly that you didn't really want you know so it was always those kinds things too like you want a complete 72 card set of cyberforce to be all mark Silvestri art i don't want anybody else's art on mark Silvestri. i don't want anybody else's art on spawn i want an all jim lee wildcats card set i don't want brett booth or those artists interpretations i will mention speaking of image related cards that suck i am going to be opening a few packs of young blood trading cards on wax pack flashback on the trn tv that's the retro network youtube channel i'm part of that series so if you never opened a pack of young blood or you want to relive the frustration just subscribe over there so you can be ready when that hits the airwaves but uh, you know it seems like they were a joke and maybe we need some jokes right now to lighten our mood we sure do we love a good turox top 10 So here we are on this top 10 page, and i got to point out that an image has reoccurred right next to it. Adam, do you see this, the Spider-Man with the webbing thing? Yeah. There's this little little next month thing featuring the X-Files and Section 4, something that says, Freaks, more frightening than the weirdness of X-Files, spookier than Alan Moore in a dark pub. It's the fourth annual wizard costume contest and it's not for the squeamish <laughs> it's a previous one of this this gentleman that's shooting webs and he's a little bit overweight in his uh spider-man costume which we saw in a previous film 
Well, it's interesting you bring that up, Michael, because uh, last year, this was our most popular video on the Wizards Podcast YouTube channel, was you and I giving our commentary about the photos from the Halloween costume contest. And so I am formally inviting you, then, to join me again this year, as uh, in issue 52, that will be covered. So let's get ready to record. Oh, good. Oh, How come no one told me Dale Keown was in Metallica? Look at Dale Keown in here. He's straight out of Metallica. He's a total hairband. Look at that I feel guy. like he could That's at least hilarious. be a substitute for Megadeth. You know, Dave Mustaine <laughs> calls in sick. Yeah. Although I think uh, Dale Keown is a bassist. But let's get this laugh fest started, Michael. Okay. Top ten worst things about Lois and Clark, the new Adventures of Superman. Oh, this is going to be glorious. Okay, number ten. Korean no, stop. No, no. You, you can't even read that. Just, no. Skip it. I gotta start proofreading these, cause, uh, more often than not. Why you do know. I always get these? Okay. Number 10, redacted. Oh, uh, yeah, number 10, we're gonna skip over. Somebody else go to the number 9. Um, alright, so number 9, uh, no one's beaten Jimmy Olsen to death yet. Although they did replace the actors, I think, between seasons 1 and 2, so it makes you think maybe somebody did. Number 8, uh, show just doesn't seem the same since Dean Kane's horseback riding accident. Wizard! No! Oh my, come on. This is horrible. Uh. Number 7. Since when is Perry White a jog-blowing, moonshine-drinking, hee-haw, and Elvis-loving hillbilly? I like that he loved Elvis. I like that, because I remember he told a story in the show about how he went, when he finally got to see Elvis, he was older and fatter and decrepit, but he got to see it and live his dream of seeing Elvis, and I remember that significantly in my mind. Plus, that actor is the dad from the Polly Shore film Son-in-Law, which I love, so he will always have a place in my heart. <laughs> Number six, not as much fun to make fun of as Sequest. Uh, that one dolphin we want to see end up in a can of tuna. I like Sequest also. <laughs> I like They're just out to rile you up this time, Michael. Really, really went after me on this one. Okay, Adam, what's number five say? Number five, Clark's ties are louder than a Metallica concert. Oh, boy. Number four, no Vic Tayback screaming, you dinging broads. Do either of you know what that is a reference to? Is that the original Superman show from the black and white show? No, no. So, uh... Vic Tabak was an actor on a sitcom called Alice, which was about waitresses in a diner, and I watched it. I don't know who else remembers the show, but I mainly remember it also because The State, that MTV sketch comedy show, they did a joke about Vic Tabak on there as well, so it has stayed in my consciousness. Ah, yeah. Cue car crash sound, because I don't know. All right, Gabe, what do you got for number three? Number three, no one ever attacks Lois in the shower. Is that an oh. Alfred Hitchcock reference? Seems or is like it Terry it. Hatcher? I was going to say, what was that movie she was in where you, you get to see the goods? <laughs> I don't know, but I did just watch a movie with her and Andrew Dice Clay called Brain Smasher that I found on VHS. Brain Smasher, a love story. Look it up. <laughs> Pretty good Terry Hatcher performance from the director of the 1990 Captain America film. 
Number two, Comet the Super Horse Goes Into Heat episode, preempted by Joey Lawrence's Recipe for Lovin', in parentheses, and we wanted to see Comet bag that Olsen kid. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. oh, let me ask you a question. Do you read these before you put this in the No, it is the one show thing notes. that I do not read ahead of time in hopes of keeping things spontaneous and fun, but that is proving okay. to be a mistake. Wizard, you are crossing the line. And the number one thing in the top ten worst things about Lois and Clark, the Adventures of Superman, it just sucks. Well, Michael, Wizard had your number this time around. They just wanted to stick it to you. I'll tell you, this was not their best top ten list. I'll give them that. But, I mean, it's got a reaction. Take a shower. It's a little cringeworthy, this one. Shows you the times, because back then, that was funny. Like, yeah, that would have gotten, gotten standing ovation. Well, you know, maybe not one of their best top ten lists, but certainly one of our best shows. We had a lot of fun here, Gabe. Thanks for all the enthusiasm you brought and for purchasing the magazine ahead of time. Was there anything you read that we didn't cover you just wanted to throw in here at the end for discussion? We did an article here about video games, and they talk about the Thanos and the Infinity Gauntlet game. Is that like the Marvel superheroes fighting game? Yeah. I just mentioned this because uh, I have one of those one-up arcades that has this video game in it, and that's the coolest thing. Oh. There's a Super Nintendo port of it called uh, the Gems, or Infinity Gems. Well, have fun playing that, and uh, like we said, Gabe, it was such a pleasure having you here, so why don't you tell people where they can find you online if they want to get connected to your world of comic fandom and everything you're involved in? Yeah, you guys can hit me up on Instagram. I've been throwing up all kinds of cool stuff on here uh, from when I was doing this read-through of Wizard Magazine. You can check me out there. Gabe loves 90s comics. I threw, I'm going to throw up a photo of the Witchblade number one that I bought because I read this article in this magazine and I realized I don't have a Witchblade number one and that's one of the top 10 90s comics to own so I went out and bought a copy of that so I'll be throwing that up there Whatnot Whatnot which is an app where it's live auction sales and I do a lot of cool comic book sales on there you can follow me there as Ninja Comics because ninjas make everything better <laughs> Well, that is for sure. And you know what else makes things better is you, the listener, being a part of the Wizards universe. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. Thank you so much for sharing on social media with us at Wizards Comics, on Instagram at Wizards underscore comics. We have just gotten some great tips on collectibles uh, from Wizard that we picked up recently. Also, you know, you guys have been telling us about what you like. Our new episode art. Yes. So we have a new logo that everybody was going gaga for so that was exciting that actually came from our silent producer jeremy who's a guy who's been working behind the scenes since the beginning he's actually going to be moving on he gave us that one last gift and so i'm going to be doing my best to pick up the slack there Uh, of course you heard michael and i are going to be handling that halloween video on youtube so make sure you're subscribed over there to wizards podcast and if you want to send us any special fan art you know we our buddy and Logan 77 on Twitter. Jeff, he sent that awesome piece of original art. We would love to see what you have in mind. You know, we could get our own drawing board segment going on social media. You guys can share your fan art selections, or if it's related directly to the podcast, that's awesome as well. So yeah, so just stay tuned, stay connected, leave us a five-star review if you've got time, because it means the world to us and helps more people find the show. We've been hearing all about the enthusiasm of new listeners who've discovered us, and so welcome, welcome. Welcome, but until next time, 
keep your books bagged and boarded. of the Retro Network.